0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: So let's take stock. What lessons do we think Susan Collins has learned after she said she thinks the president has learned lessons? I think she's...
2: Definitely learned that all podcasts begin with the word so. Yes, well, everyone knows that.
3: I just, you know, beautiful Susan Collins's faith in the human spirit and the goodness of all people and all presidents and their ability to grow and learn. Oh, yeah. Um, And definitely not a craven political actor. Um, who is full of shit, but no, like a really good faith expression of just hope. She said it was an aspiration. <laughs> she ever... was saying she hoped he learned. <laughs> Have we ever gone that
2: little time before getting the explicit rating? Oh, for sure. Okay, for sure. Just just checking. Hope springs eternal, though, right?
3: It's, it's, so, it's so optimistic of you, Susan Collins. I well. think we've all learned... Yet another lesson about who you are Her optimism is
1: unbound.
0: I will say she's on Twitter. She's been talking about how nearly 40% of Maine deer ticks tested positive for Lyme disease in 2019. So this is a woman who has her finger on the pulse of the real (laughs) issues facing America today. Hey,
2: tick-borne illnesses are a big problem in Maine. I hope those ticks learn a lesson.
3: Maybe she's subtweeting Trump. Tick, tick,
2: tick, tick, tick.
1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Lessons Learned Edition. I'm Shane Harris. I have learned nothing in three years. Nothing.
3: Unteachable. I'm
1: unteachable, irredeemable, inflexible. I believe in learning lessons. I believe that the human mind has a capacity for adaptation.
3: I believe that next time, Lucy's going to hold that (laughs) football. Charlie Brown's going to give it a little kick.
1: I do wonder if Susan Collins, when she gave that comment in the interview, was just thinking in her head like, you know, ooh, could I take that back?
2: Yeah, I have a feeling that was one she regretted
1: yeah. almost immediately. Almost I immediately as soon as you say She backed off it within 12 hours. She did. She it's going to be on her tombstone though. <laughs> <now. laughs> I am here in the New Jungle studio with my good friends Ben Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and Quinta Jurestic. Hi, everybody. Yo. Hi.
0: Quinta, Hello. thank you for
1: jumping in and joining us.
0: Always a pleasure. It's
1: a week. It's a week. It's Trump Unbound. When Qu- was Trump ever bound?
2: Yeah, there's there are the restrained Trump weeks. Like, you know, uh, sorry, I'm not thinking of one. But then, <laughs> then there are the, the you know, particularly unrestrained Trump weeks. And this would be one of those. All right. Well, we're going to get into it. Is it the it. record-breaking one, though?
1: Uh, I don't know. I think it's just notable that it's coming after impeachment and this sort of like hopeful moment. Because I
2: think the one where you fire the FBI director, boast about it to the Russians, and spill classified information in the Oval Office to the Russian foreign minister—that one's still that right week. up.
1: Don't there. don't
0: encourage him to try to top that.
1: <laughs> I think the hashtag response to Susan Collins is
3: psych. Just kidding. Yeah.
1: Just kidding. On the podcast this week, four prosecutors step down from the Roger Stone case after the Justice Department contradicts their sentencing recommendation. The White House purges officials who testified in Trump's impeachment trial. And the Justice Department is taking a look at Rudy Giuliani's investigation into the Bidens. They set up a process for it. Yeah, it's a process. Did you know like Rudy Giuliani apparently has a podcast? Yeah. This? yeah. I think it's sponsored by Cigar Aficionado magazine.
0: Yeah, so he has a podcast. Really? I think it may only be available. Very- on YouTube. I think it's a video it was, podcast, which is not yeah, a podcast. so you can only watch that's it not a on YouTube, and it's just Rudy Giuliani looking into the camera and <laughs> speaking at you and waving a cigar. And it's called Common Sense.
2: Yes. and I, I think we, that's should, right. we should we should like cross promote it between like really we yeah we should have like
0: we would love to have Rudy.
2: Giuliani we can have as a guest. Rudy Giuliani on Rational Security, and he can invite us on Common Sense. Could and, Cigar
1: Aficionado also sponsor this <laughs> podcast? Because I'll take it. I mean, I was thinking that's funny that like, people were complaining. Apparently, apparently, Rudy was complaining that nobody could download his podcast. Because right, it was on which, you it's YouTube. It's on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> like,
3: <laughs> Cyber czar, guys, Oh, my remember. word.
1: All right. Let's get into it first with uh, the news from kind of really overnight, I guess. Um, so f- the four prosecutors on the Roger Stone case have stepped down ahead of sentencing after Maine Justice reversed or essentially walked back to their sentencing recommendation to the judge that Stone should get seven to nine years uh, for his uh, for his crimes, which included obstructing Congress and interfering with an investigation – Susan, the Justice Department is painting this, and there have been some late-breaking tweets, which we'll get into, as a decision that was made before President Trump tweeted on Tuesday that he was outraged by this recommendation, which he thought was excessive and unfair. But career federal prosecutors do not just step down uh, because they had a slight disagreement. This clearly seems to reflect some uh, deep misgivings or outright Uh, opposition on their part to what main justice happened. So did so what do we think happened here and, and, and kind of unpack this for us a little bit?
3: Yeah, so two things. One, I don't know why we would credit Bill Barr or, or Lindsey Graham, who's the other individual who's saying that this decision was made prior to the president's tweet. I don't know why we would credit their representations in the first place, you know, that they've been um, openly and explicitly uh, dishonest with the American public on important issues. So setting that aside, um, the question here is one of overt political interference, and and it actually doesn't matter, it's not essential whether or not the overt political interference came based on the president's tweet Tuesday morning or whether or not it was overt political interference that came prior to the president's tweet on Tuesday morning, right? It's overt political interference. So the thing to understand here is there actually is... Sort of a legitimate controversy at the core of this, or there was a legitimate controversy at the core of this, and it essentially centers around whether or not prosecutors were going to push for a particular sentencing enhancement under the guidelines, and um, the sentencing enhancement based on uh, basically threatening a witness. And so the question here was, Randy Credico has said that he didn't really feel threatened by what Stone had said, and so well, you know, should you really make that the basis of this enhancement or not if the witness didn't feel threatened? I also threatened Randy
1: Credico's dog.
3: Also also his dog Bianca. We yeah, did not can I... exactly. Bianca did not get to weigh in. On exactly. This um, you know, justice for Bianca. Um, uh, you know, and apparently this was um, this was a co- this was controversial. This is something that was debated within the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. Um, often that's the case, right? There's a process to decide what is the appropriate sentencing recommendation. Um, it's not a perfect process. It's not a process that produces like the one flawless correct answer every single time. But it is an apolitical process that is making decisions about uh, sort of larger questions of institutional equities, fairness, consistency over long periods of time, and of course, the guidelines themselves. And remember, this is just a recommendation. The judge gets to do whatever she wants um, uh, based on both the prosecution's recommendation and the defense's uh, recommendation. So this process played out. Uh, There was reportedly debate within the U.S. Attorney's Office. The career prosecutors won and they submitted a sentencing recommendation that said, we believe the guideline range." includes this enhancement in its seven to nine years. Bill Barr didn't like that outcome. And the reason Bill Barr didn't like that outcome has nothing to do with how Bill Barr feels about the fairness of the sentencing guidelines and has everything to do with the identity of the defendant in question, which is Roger Stone. And that's because Roger Stone is, one, a political ally of the President of the United States, and two, potentially someone in a position to have additional incriminating information about the President of the United States. There is no question in any person's mind anywhere that that is, the motivation for this decision. and so what happened is whenever Bill Barr understood saw this recommendation that an apolitical process had had produced, didn't like it for purely political reasons and let's not pretend for one second it was anything else, he overruled them. And so we saw all the prosecutors withdrew from the case. One pro- one of the prosecutors actually resigned from the Justice Department. And that's because whenever you are an assistant U.S. attorney or a special assistant U.S. attorney detailed to the office in this particular case, and you are presented with manifest injustice, with political interference in decisions that should never, ever be political, your only remedy is to resign. And so that's what happened here. And so I, I think people are not fully grasping the seriousness of what occurred here And the seriousness of the muted response. This is the kind of thing that we would ordinarily expect to spark, not just the individual resignations of these prosecutors, but mass resignation, mass protest across the department. And instead, we're hearing crickets. And that's something that I think is just incredibly, incredibly disturbing and ominous that we've reached this point.
1: But I want to pick up on this idea of Bill Barr and where he is in the decision-making process of this. I don't know that attorney general's or attorneys general, always review every sentencing recommendation before it actually goes to the judge. But it seems kind of crazy to me that Bill Barr would only be learning about the sentencing recommendation at the point at which it's made. Where do you think he is in the decision-making process of this? And 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 does it matter if he didn't know uh, before the career prosecutors made this recommendation what the sentencing was? Does he have some authority to step in and say, you know what, I think that's excessive?
2: He certainly has the authority to do it, unlike the President who really shouldn't be involved in you know making decisions about investigations or prosecutions. The Attorney General is actually supposed to supervise the Justice Department, and so I don't think there's anything in principle wrong with Bill Barr you know having an opinion about what position the Justice Department should take in an issue and uh, reaching down to direct the department in the direction that he prefers, that said, first of all, it is highly, highly irregular for the question of whether you know of of how the Justice Department should calculate the sentencing guidelines in an individual case to find its way up to the attorney general of the United States. Remember this is Uh, being prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office, it's not even in main justice. And so for this to be at a level that the Attorney General is personally involved is itself very peculiar. And of course, the reason for that is exactly what Susan just described, which is the identity of the defendant and the fact that the president personally cares about this. This is also, of course, something that Barr appears to have done in the Flynn case, also on you know, what the department should recommend vis-a-vis sentencing. And so, look, I don't think there's anything in principle wrong with the attorney general supervising cases at this level. It's very weird. And when that's happening, you have to ask why it's happening. And, of course, the reason it's happening is where the impropriety comes in, right? Where, you know, if the attorney general were reaching down because – you know, they had a policy of not recommending certain things in, for example, a certain class of drug cases. And, you know, he was concerned that lawyers were not following that. And so he ordered uh, an adjustment, for example, at that level. You would look at it and say, that's a policy issue. That's that's a, a perfectly reasonable exercise of maybe micromanaging, but but a perfectly reasonable exercise of his authority. But when it's an intervention to Undermine to 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 bring down the sentencing recommendation against an associate of the president in an investigation that the president has publicly belittled and objected to that involves the president personally and where the the nature of the uh, intervention is to effectively give the president what he wants. Uh, That is, uh, you know, a very peculiar thing. And to do that, it's obviously worse if he did it in response to the tweet. If he did it independently before the tweet, knowing that that's what the president wanted, well, that's bad too. I guess it's not quite as bad, but I prosecutors I, think it's pretty bad. Clearly. Well, they think it's bad enough to resign, and I, you know, I certainly don't want to second guess them on that. But it is. I do think it's. I do think it's. Worse, if it is as it publicly appears, they took a position, the president tweeted, and the attorney general, in response to the tweet, ordered a reversal of it.
1: So Quinta, Ben's describing, obviously, a peculiar set of actions uh, by Bill Barr uh, for an attorney general. They don't strike me as particularly peculiar for Bill Barr, considering, I mean, he has been very explicit in his view Uh, that political leadership is what should guide the Department of Justice. Uh, You know, he's spoken uh, most notably in an oral history he gave years ago about feeling that it's actually career prosecutors that are the really biased ones within the bureaucracy and they have to be checked. I mean, it, it almost seems here that this is a kind of a case study for Bill Barr to come in and say, no, 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 I'm the attorney general. I'm going to protect the president. You guys, the prosecutors, you answer to me, this is how we're going to do things. And in that sense, it strikes me as entirely in keeping with Bill Barr's philosophy.
0: I think it it may both be true that it is in keeping with how Barr has handled himself as attorney general and that it is a radical departure from what we're used to seeing in the Justice Department and how the Justice Department should be governed. Certainly, if you are Bill Barr and you went out there before the Mueller report was released and said that there was no collusion and take a view of executive authority that is extremely broad, such that it's appropriate for the president to you know, reach down and request interference in particular cases, then this does seem like a natural outgrowth of that. But the fact that all four of the prosecutors on Stone's case resigned, which is not something that we've seen happen before under Barr or under the Trump administration at all before, really should derive home just how extreme this is. And I I also think one point that it's important to make is there was a lot of discussion yesterday um, along the lines of what Susan was saying, sort of, you know, reasonable minds can disagree on sentencing guidelines, maybe seven years is a really long time to put someone in prison for anything, much less obstruction. That may well be true. The point is that the attorney general appears to have interfered at the public request of the president in one case rather than making, as Ben suggested, a kind of widespread department wide decision, like in obstruction cases, we generally want to apply the guidelines in such and such way.
3: Yeah, it, there's even a larger point here, which is that this is a deviation from a longtime department position, which is that the guidelines are presumptively reasonable. Prosecutors going to court all across the country every single day to make the arguments that a guideline sentence is presumptively reasonable. And I, I bet it will be a, a matter of weeks, not months, before we see defense attorneys go in other courtrooms, the federal courtrooms across the country, saying, wait a minute, DOJ has now reversed its position and they are now claiming that a guideline sentence and a guidelines range is grossly disproportionate and, and shocks the conscience. And so whatever we're talking about the, uh, the erosions here, it's not just... Just this notion of sort of of apolitical justice, which is of course a, a pillar of uh, the rule of law, it's also the the broader equities of the department. And so, Bill Barr is certainly not making a, a general argument for the uh, for the injustice of, of the guidelines ranges in general. Uh, and in doing so, he's actually undermining lots and lots of U.S. attorneys who are arguing all kinds of cases and for sentencing recommendations based on the guidelines. All across the country every single day.
2: I do think, though, Shane, that your question gets to something interesting in the organizational psychology of of Barr. You know, uh, if you go back to that oral history interview that he did uh, with the Miller Center, uh, you know, he's got to be in his bonnet about career officials. And, you know, we on... Uh, who are kind of Justice Department romantics, have this idea that there is a political echelon that comes in on top of the institutional department that represents its kind of long-term memory, I- its traditions, its but that the heart of the department is in the career officials with this political echelon that comes in and out. And that is not the way Bill Barr sees it. He sees it as, you know, an administration comes in and runs the Justice Department. And there are these career officials who are kind of the foot draggers who don't, you know, who kind of slow things down and don't do what they're told. And so you got to come kind of come in and knock heads together and make them do what an administration wants to do. And to be fair to him, that is exactly what he did here um but i i do think it is a very different matter when what when you're doing that on behalf of a policy objective versus when you're doing that on behalf of you know some personal interest like the president's kind of obsessive vendetta against you know people who were involved in the Russia thing and his solicitude for those who you know, kind of stuck their middle fingers up at Bob Mueller.
1: And Susan, just to really quickly wrap up this segment, the NBC News had some reporting in the past couple of days as well on areas, other areas where Barr has been inserting himself.
3: Yeah, so um, this this sort of NBC report, which um, which was kind of building on uh, on the reporting related to Roger Stone, um, I think was the first time we've seen reporting um, uh, that senior Justice Department officials have been that this has actually been a pattern that senior Justice Department officials were also involved in uh, the rather strange sort of about face in uh, on related to Michael Flynn's sentencing that instead of uh, the DOJ had been previously uh, asking for six months, which was already viewed as a rather lenient sentence um, and then sort of abruptly changed their tune and said, no, 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 we think probation is fine. Um, reported n- Now NBC is saying that there uh, there was senior Justice Department officials interfering in that case. Um, and that also they're suggesting that um, the removal of Jody Lou uh, as the U.S. Attorney for D.C., that that was the, the suggestion is that it was somehow rel- related to um, her unwillingness to prosecute Andy McCabe and that uh, she was sort of abruptly removed from her position and replaced by Tim Shea, someone who's um, seen as a close ally and protege of Bill Barr, um, even though her nomination for a treasury position uh, was still pending and she had no intention of leaving. And that the announcement uh, of appointing Shea, which doesn't, uh, doesn't note, uh, mention that they've just pulled Lou out of the position, notes that he has a reputation as a fair prosecutor. Um, what's unfair, according to Donald Trump, not going after his political enemies, not, uh, not protecting his friends. Um, Lou's nomination was also abruptly uh, canned uh, right after the, the stone prosecutors resigned presumably so that she wouldn't be called to testify later this week. Um, so I, I think that we're now seeing reporting that this is not a one-off thing. This is a, this is a pattern of political interference and it's something that is um, deeply corrosive and dangerous. And um, this is something people should really, really be freaking out about right now. And it's not getting a, a, nearly enough pushback that, uh, that it deserves.
1: We can talk about why in a little bit, maybe in the next segment here too. So, continuing on the theme of purges, we can call it a purge, sure. Ben. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So the White House has pushed out. Now we can debate about whether pushed out or he was about to resign and they just showed him the door early. We'll go back to his post. Alexander Vindman, who of course uh, was on the NSC staff and testified about his knowledge of the president's interactions with Ukraine, Um, also uh, kind of undercutting the idea that this was a business as usual, he was about to leave situation, um, booted out his brother, his identical twin brother. Yes,
2: because every time (laughs) I've been... Shown the door a few days early, they've always fired my brother, too.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: That's it's one of the things that, like, you didn't know that about standard HR practice that if you're if you don't finish a tour of duty in the military and they remove you for something, they always remove your brother. Sure, because
1: they don't want to get confused. I mean, they might see you in the hallway and say, hey, I fired your ass. (laughs) Oh, sorry, you're the brother. But you have to go, too. So seriously. Uh, uh, Gordon Sondland, the ambassador uh, to the EU, will have to go home now and manage his hotels in Portland because he's also (laughs) been pushed out. Um, And Jesse Liu. And Jesse Liu. Let's start continuing on the theme here. I mean, okay, so here's just one question to start this off. I mean, is this should this be properly viewed as a purge and as and as revenge, or is this just uh the normal cycle
2: of things?
3: And if you give Shane the wrong answer, <laughs> we're gonna fire you. Yeah, I was gonna say And ta- your brother.
2: To pose that and question Tammy. is also to answer it. Okay. I mean I was laying it out for what you. What a ridiculous question that is, even to ask. You're welcome. Um thank you, Shane. Look, first of all, the president has said exactly why Alexander Vinman was removed from his position, which is that he gave false information by which he means told the truth to congressional investigators on uh, about the president's perfect phone call. And uh, you know, I don't like you can read twenty presidential tweets about, you know, Alexander Vindman. And they will not leave a lot of doubt in your mind as to why he was removed. He was slated to go to war college, I believe, in July. He was supposed to hang around till then. He's not hung around till then. Uh, You don't have to be uh, a, a genius to figure out that that was not the regular order of the military playing out. And nobody's really pretending that it is. The the Vindman brothers ran afoul of the president because Alexander Vindman blew the whistle, by which I do not mean that he was the whistleblower, but he blew the whistle on... Some real improprieties in that. It well, wasn't phone the whistleblower,
1: call? but observed the phone call. So we should say also had information that bears directly on what the whistleblower complaint was.
2: Correct. He he he. In he, fact, had
1: more direct information observation than the whistleblower.
2: And, and he wrote the talking points that the president then did not use because they didn't address the question of, you know, hey, will you go after my political enemy for? Uh, me And so, you know, he then goes and testifies about this under subpoena, which is the, you know, actually should be the regular course of business. The real question should be why did certain other people not do that, not why Alexander Vinman did. And so the president hates him. Um And so that's why he was removed. It isn't more complicated than that. And you know, it's a it's a matter of some honor now for the military to figure out a way to take care of him and his brother. Uh, it's a very hard, you know, situation because it's not usual that you have a lieutenant colonel who the commander in chief, you know, sort of personally hates. Uh, but the military has now got to figure out an honorable way to to deal with the situation.
1: So, kind of wrapping back in. Susan your point that that this is that, that when we were talking about the prosecutor stepping down and the overruling that's going on by bar that this being something that you know apparently is not inciting any outrage what we're seeing here with Vindman is arguably a kind of you know public um humiliation it is absolutely meant to send a message i don't know how you could read it any other way considering the president has been talking about it before this i mean is is it possible that the reason we're just simply not seeing any outrage over this is because this is exactly what everyone expects that the president would do. Like there is nothing surprising, although there may be things that people find shocking and outrageous in this, um, but nothing at all um, out of line with exactly how Donald Trump reacts when people have in his mind slighted him or betrayed him and that perhaps people aren't reacting good because this is just the world we live in now.
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously this is intended to be a message to others and, and to chill future whistleblowers who might get it in their head to um, to share information with Congress about abuses they might have witnessed.
1: And it very well may work.
3: It, it, I think it, li- it likely will work, right? Who who would look at these individuals and say, "Well, the president wasn't actually held accountable, and he was acquitted, and and these people find themselves sort of in, in the crosshair of this." Or who would um, look
1: at Vinman and say, "Sign me up for that." Exactly, you know, yeah. that looks
3: like a good deal and and a good uh, you know sort of career development move t- for me to be making. Um, you know, in terms of why people aren't. Outraged. Um, I actually think we really need to focus on the timing here. So there's a lot of, um, you know, Jonathan Turley uh, has a an op-ed this morning, you know, the president has every right to have his own staff and to have the staff he wants. And this is an individual who didn't share the president's policy views. And so he should be fired. And that's, you know, the heart of executive uh, powers, you know, that he's allowed to do this. Uh, of course, nobody's suggesting it's, he's not, he doesn't have the authority to reassign someone. And um, this is yet another case of the president abusing a power that he plainly does have. Have. Um, that said, you know, if uh, the president of the United States had directed officials at DOD and OMB and then the NSC not to testify in front of Congress and had asserted executive privilege, as he did. I mean, didn't actually assert the privilege, but sort of claimed it in this um, broad, like, you know, Marion Williamson manifesting executive privilege in reality. Sense Article, of the two. Term, exactly. two Article two. Exactly. Article two. And they had um, defied him, and as they did, and testified any- anyway. Um, and he had fired them on the spot. Or, or even before they testified, um, I wouldn't really object to that, right? Because... Yeah, you're, that's that's what happens. Like this assertion of executive privilege as this magic wand by which the president can control the flow of information, you know, if an executive official disagrees with their boss uh, on whether or not they should and can testify about particular topics, so they are risking their job. Um, and if it happens immediately in response, um, that can become part of the political accountability and, and, uh, and political calculus of the immediate situation. Um, but instead, what Trump did was nothing, right? He allowed these people to continue serving in their own roles, um, then waited until he was acquitted and then sought retaliation. And I think he did it because he understood after the incredibly heavy lift of marshalling some political outrage to impeach him, even sort of the mild censure of, of you know, at least Susan Collins says there's a lesson that he should be learning, right? Some indication that he did something wrong. He, he understands how hard that is to do, how reluctant Republicans are to do that. Um, and so he knows that for this period of time, there is a huge range of kind of below threshold activity that he can just get away with. And so, you know, I, I think the He's he understands Congress, right? He understands that um, they aren't going to do anything right now because they don't want to lift up any more rocks because they've just gone through, um, you know, this hideous, politically damaging process of having to actually look at the president's conduct and, and vote to acquit. And so, you know, this actually isn't supposed to be how this works. It isn't supposed to be that the president gets to do whatever he wants in ways that, you know, are, are designed to sidestep political accountability. The problem is whenever you don't have a functional Congress that that performs its own legislative function, doesn't perform oversight function, doesn't actually um, provide any kind of political constraint. Of course, Trump's going to do what he can get away with. And and of course, he's going to get away with it.
1: Quinta, you've written a lot about whether we've been at various moments in a constitutional crisis or a constitutional rot that is sort of spreading. And I'm curious after this, where now we see the president, you know, taking all these extraordinary measures and, and maybe I think Susan's right that he understands you can't do it in the middle of the trial, so you have to wait to settle the business till the after the trial. And maybe he's got a window and then he calms down. I mean, do you think that this is just more of the rot spreading, or has something fundamentally just rotted and given way here in the way that Congress is just not responding to this?
0: Right. The The thing about the rot metaphor that I like is that if the floorboards rot for long enough, eventually when you try to walk across the floor, it falls through. <laughs> right. um, I, so
1: has the floor collapsed?
0: <laughs> I think that is going to be hard to know, except in retrospect. I did have a conversation with someone yesterday about the resignations on the stone trial in the wake of the Vindman firing, the Saddam firing, where I said that this struck me as the kind of moment that you look back on later and say, ah, that's one point where we could have stopped this. Um, but I don't know where this road goes. I will say, just for a little more context, so the idea of constitutional decay is not necessarily you know, one moment of clear crisis where everyone is running around panicked, but rather a sort of slow process by which people act out the structure of the Constitution and nominally adhere to the text, but don't really believe in or act out the underlying principles. And I actually think that The example of a president directly interfering in the sentencing hearing of a former associate is a great example of that. He can do it. He shouldn't do it under the oath. But what happens during rot is that the oath is no longer operational. And what the Senate functionally did in acquitting the president, I think, was looked at, you know, the spreading rot and said, yep, no, looks good to us. Like, go ahead. And so... Whatever rot there is, I think, is only going to get worse. From here, I don't know how close we are to the point where the floorboards genuinely cave in.
1: All right. Well, before the floorboards cave in, the Justice Department wants to hear from Rudy Giuliani. They are open for business.
2: Rudy Giuliani, who actually strikes me as a walking, living personification of constitutional (laughs) rot. Like if if you (laughs) – yeah, sort of decrepit. About yeah, exactly, him. <laughs> he sort of used to be grand, but the 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 floorboards the are kind are a of shaky.
1: The exactly. shutters have fallen off. You don't take care
3: of that moisture right away. And It'll I get, like it. He needs
1: I, repointing.
3: And I loved his denial
2: to Olivia Nuzzi about whether he was drinking too much. He said, "You know, I think the quote is something like, I absolutely don't have a drinking problem.'" Except for scotch.
3: (laughs) Maybe he should be on this podcast. Which
2: is, you
1: know... I think Olivia and Rudy should get on the podcast together.
3: I would listen to an Olivia and Rudy podcast 100%. Right, Olivia,
1: you could have the podcast one week if you want to bring on Rudy. Like, totally. That'd be just fine. Like, they could do it and then we could come in afterwards and observe it. Um, but the Justice Department has said, Bill Barr has said, that well, yes, we would be happy to look at the information that Rudy Giuliani has been digging up on the Bidens and on the conspiracies that he says – Uh, have never been fully investigated in Ukraine It's conspiracies against the president, both while in office and when he was running for the presidency. Ben, Barr tried to, it seemed to me, portray this as, well, hey, you know, we're the Justice Department. We take all tips, which cannot possibly be true. I mean, the number of I mean, just judging by my own inbox, usually the the. The sort of wheat from chaff ratio is Shane such Shane has that.
3: reported the aliens <laughs> hundreds of times.
1: Oh, wait till you get to my object lesson, honey. Uh, is It they can't possibly be true, right? So, I mean, what does Bill Barr mean here when he says we're going to be vetting Rudy Giuliani's information or we've set up some kind of process? Remember, this is the same person who you know, sort of walked a weird packet of materials to the State Department inspector general. And it was, you know, it was generally incoherent. I mean, when you were when the public got a chance to look at it.
2: Right. So I I think there is a sense in which what Barr says is true and a sense in which what he says, as you just described, is uh, nonsense. So the you've just described the nonsense quality to it. But look, that. the sense in which it's true is that the Justice Department receives – Material and is at least theoretically open to tips from anybody all the time. This is actually the response to Republicans who are outraged that the FBI would have received material from Christopher Steele, right? And the answer is, well, get material from mobsters, terrorists, and you know, and drug kingpins. Uh, why not former British spies, right? And the general rule is if somebody has information that may be evidence of a crime, you receive it and then you vet that information and decide whether it adequately establishes a predicate to open an investigation. So in theory, there is nothing in like wrong with Bill Barr receiving information from the president's lawyer and then assessing it according to known Justice Department standards, that is you know, the Levy guidelines predication requirements as updated a bunch of years ago. The problem with this, of course, is that we know that Rudy has not done a serious investigation and we know that a lot of his information is bullshit for reasons that you describe. And so when you announce, as Barr has, that there is a process – for receiving this information. It affords it a certain amount of dignity that, you know, you're like the, the president's lawyer has conducted an investigation and he's giving the Giuliani report to the attorney general who will read it very seriously and determine whether further investigation is warranted, right? That's the way it sounds. And one would sincerely hope that that is not what is happening, that what's actually happening is that the attorney general has set up a system by which, you know, some assistant U.S. attorney in Pittsburgh can be the conduit from Rudy for Rudy's in- Some information lucky guy or girl. into the garbage can. And, you know, so I think there's there's reason to be anxious about what's been set up here. There's also reason to be hopeful that what it actually is is a, is a, a mechanism to get rid of stuff without embarrassing the president, frankly.
3: Yeah, so we were – Debating sort of this exact point yesterday, whenever uh, this news or I guess two days ago, um, whenever this news sort of first came out of like, what is what does it mean? And is there a non nefarious explanation? And is there a bad one? And what are sort of the range of possibilities? And I do think there's one thing sort of worth noting about where we are. um, And that's that ordinarily, whenever there is a question of sort of genuine political sensitivity that is at odds with kind of, right, DOJ's commitments, right? So DOJ can't say, we refuse to hear anything from Rudy Giuliani. We refuse to hear anything about Ukraine or allegations of corruption against Joe Biden. They have to be willing to take that. Um, and yet they also have obligations to not, you know, become sort of the president's you know, political janissaries and, and uh, be viewed as going after his uh, his various political enemies, Ordinarily, there are these actors that emerge that sort of serve as um, points of legitimacy, right, where we can say, okay – you know, we might have our own personal suspicions of Bill Barr, but if X is in charge, and we've actually seen uh, that process play out, right? We saw Robert Mueller, right? He sort of, he acted as that during the Russia investigation. We saw that early on with John Durham, right? That Bill Barr was appointing John Durham, and well, he's a career prosecutor, and I don't know people, right? He was he was a longtime prosecutor before he became the U.S. attorney, and he's sort of respected in the department, so I guess he has institutional credibility. And, and and then we've seen Barr erode that and overreach, right, and get involved in, in the prosecution and uh, Durham you know, issue these statements contradicting the attorney, the the inspector general's report, right? These these signs that actually um, there aren't actors left who can serve as that uh, legitimacy role. And so I, I was thinking about this, like, okay, if Bill Barr really did want to sort of um, follow the Uranium One model and he's just like, I just need a place to stick the crazy Rudy stuff that's just going to give it like a quick check, like, okay, nothing really serious here. Great, we looked at it. There's nothing, you know, it'll all go away. Like, what could he do that would cause me, somebody who has – a historically a lot of institutional faith in DOJ, um, to think, okay, this is a legitimate process. And frankly, I'm out of names. I'm out of people or offices or structures that I can point to and say the American people can have confidence that X is not corrupted, right? It's it's come down to sort of this general vague sense of, well, people you might know personally and think are, are good guys or bad guys or would resign. And so the, the actual fact that we've reached this place in which DOJ has become sort of DOJ legitimacy has become so eroded and actually the traditional mechanisms we might turn to to restore that in important moments I don't even know that they exist anymore and I actually think that's um, like we should take a step back and think about What that means, what about that, what that means for expectations of the department moving forward, what it means for the next six to eight months, what it means if Donald Trump is reelected, because it is one moment that really hit me that even if Donald Trump is voted out of office, um, the work of restoring the integrity of the department is enormous. And even somebody who wanted to begin that endeavor in good faith I don't even know where I would tell them to start at this point. And so we'll have to save that conversation, hopefully, for a later day. Um, but it was a um, a moment in which I, I guess I hadn't realized how how bad things had gotten uh, until we found ourselves facing yet another sort of DOJ legitimacy crisis or, or potential one.
1: Quinta, this is a last question. You know, Rudy and his crusade to have – these investigations conducted, you know, arguably, uh, you could say he was doing this in part to defend the president, to help the president, you could say he was doing it to wound Joe Biden. Uh, Donald Trump's been acquitted. Joe Biden is sucking wind and his campaign might be on life support. We'll see how he does in South Carolina. So one question this raises, I think, is, you know, what gives Rudy, like you won? Why are you still, <clears throat> unless you are just that deeply concerned about corruption in Ukraine, because he one- retort to that might be, well, what is Rudy Giuliani getting out of this? I mean, is he who's paying Rudy Giuliani? He was on this mission a long time ago. I mean it seems like the more that Rudy pursues this, he continues to raise questions about his motives.
0: I will say to start off that I have never understood the chain of who is paying who in the Ukraine story, and I've ultimately concluded that there's probably only like five hundred thousand dollars involved, and everyone is just paying it to each other in a circle because it's, like it's a, a Ponzi, Ponzi scheme. There is no other way that it works. It makes no sense. It's everyone is, is like, a I
3: gotta
1: sell this shampoo.
3: You gotta get five friends, and then they investigate in Ukraine, and then they find five more people. I I
0: think we figured it out. I think Um, that's it. (laughs) In all seriousness, apart from whatever financial motives may or may not be on the table, I also think there is a possibility that in the same way that we've seen Trump kind of throw something out there just because and then become deeply attached to it, that there may be a similar dynamic here. The obvious example is Trump's famous tweet about how Obama was tapping his wires, which he really just seems to have kind of fired off because that was a collection of words that sounded nice to him at the moment, and now genuinely has talked himself into believing that the Obama administration was wiretapping Trump Tower. And it's not obvious to me that there's not a similar dynamic here where you kind of get yourself into this position of investigating Hunter Biden because it would be politically advantageous, and then at this point, not only Trump or Rudy, but the entire, you know, the greater Fox News expanded universe is so sunk in on this idea that Joe Biden is irredeemably corrupt in some kind of way regarding Ukraine, that it's, it's just hard to let it go and that there may be a kind of perpetual motion machine aspect mm-hmm. to it.
2: Which could end up exhausting even
1: Trump
0: supporters.
2: Cre- I'm going to create a similar conspiracy theory about Quinta and Bolivia.
0: Ooh. I have never been to Bolivia. Yeah. Sure. Actually,
2: you haven't gotten the chief prosecutor there fired and
1: boasted I, about
0: it? I know very little about the Bolivian system of government. We know beyond all about, your, you know all about your
1: investments in the Bolivian helium industry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've actually, you know, I've been selling, I have this great plan. You have to sell it to two friends. They sell it to two friends.
1: <laughs> I have two friends. Uh, Let's move on to object lessons. I didn't even ask you guys if you have objects. I have an object lesson. I have an object lesson, too. We did did bring you at the last minute. I I do not have an object. I'm objectless. Uh, I'm going to go last. So, Ben, you can go first.
2: So, my object lesson is a Twitter thread that was posted by a gentleman named Craig Calcaterra, who is a baseball writer for NBC Sports. And he uh, tweets – Last night, me, got any homework? Anna, his daughter presumably, nah. Me, what you gonna do? Anna, have a map I'm working on. I just found this on her desk. And this is a map of, the, of North and South America, the political lines of which have been not completely withdrawn, but to one degree or another subtly redrawn. Craig uh, writes underneath, Chile becoming long Chile, removing the entire West Coast and causing the Chilean-American war was not something I was really expecting. And if you look at this uh, sketched map, Chile runs from where it now is all the way up the West Coast of the United States and Canada. And he says, folks, I realize you all have a lot of questions. I have many myself. We're just going to have to wait for her to get home from school to sort this out. Anna is a 16-year-old. And the rest of the thread is him texting with his daughter, asking her questions that Twitter followers have sent in about this map. And it is a delightful distraction from whatever may be ailing with you. And I think Anna has a great future as a mythological cartographer. <laughs> um, and,
1: but not an actual one. Uh, well,
2: I, I thought there, there was a lot of wit and wisdom in in this map. It was very fun and funny. And I I recommend it to you all.
1: Did Anna realize that she was being exploited for our amusement? Oh yes. Oh, she's uh, it, in with it. Okay. it. Well, she is at the end of the thread because you know, sixteen-year-olds don't use Twitter.
2: Yeah, uh, she they
3: says use something we like haven't even heard of yet.
2: Um,
1: They're all TikToking.
2: He says to her, "Anyway, it's over fourteen thousand likes now. My Twitter has been totally unusable all day." To which she responds, "I'm glad I could cause an inconvenience." Aww, kids say that darndest things, Susan.
3: So my object lesson is also a little bit of a distraction, um, and it is an article from the Washington Post um, by one Greg Miller. um, Never heard of it. The title is The Intelligence Coup of the Century. Um, And this is – I don't want to sort of overly give it away, but it is a long-form piece about the CIA's – reported alleged involvement in ownership of, uh, of a, uh, a company that manufactured encryption devices that were used all over the world. Um, this has been a story that um, the pieces of which, sort of small pieces of which have actually been in public for a long time, um, really since sort of the early 90s and um, it's been kind of a, an intelligence community um, uh, mystery that a couple of different people have sort of tried to, uh, to get their arms around and sort of tell this story and um, uh, Greg Miller, I think, has um, finally kind of cracked the case of, of exactly mm, says what happened. The and, NSA um, mm. I have no personal knowledge, uh, sure, uh, not being <laughs> involved in not code breaking machines <laughs> in World War II. Um, but it's just it's a it's a really fascinating, interesting read. And um, if you are like me, and like sort of the the deep history of uh, intelligence community activity and and policy and technology, and um, something that actually feels really quite relevant for lots of modern debates. That are going on right now about um encryption and the government's role in the world and all that stuff Um, it was just a a fun interesting read um and will take your mind off of um the justice department in new hampshire at least for the 20 minutes it takes you to read it
1: so i have an object lesson as well that will take your mind off some things and perhaps cause you to fixate on others Uh, so There are these things in deep space called fast radio bursts or FRBs that astronomers occasionally observe. And essentially these are exactly what they sound like. They are fast bursts of radio waves, of energy, uh, often very, very fast. And one of their distinguishing characteristics is that they kind of flash or sort of belch out in the cosmos and are never seen again. Uh, And they clearly seem to not repeat with any frequency or irregularity or regularity until now. So, astronomers with the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, or CHIME.
3: Sounds like a real thing. Go on.
1: Right. Not the Acapella. Sounds group, official. Torchdown, has found an FRB that repeats and repeats every 16.35 days. So, it is repeating regularly. Now, there was this movie called Contact with Jodie Foster where they also saw a repeating, regularly occurring radio signal coming from the space.
2: There are also these things called. Planets that t- rotate, and you know stars that orbit on regular rotations, and
1: beings live on planets.
0: So, is wh- what you're saying is Some that the aliens are coming to put yes, us out of our misery? Yes, our misery. I yeah, the welcome them at this point. Can, 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 <laughs> can we put
1: them in charge
2: of the Justice Department?
1: Y'all can't come quickly enough. <laughs> Uh, but this is a fascinating story. We'll link to it in the show page. Uh, but yes, this is an FRB every 16.35 days. Now, to be clear. Can we call them frubs? The frubs. Sure. And actually, this one has a name. I'll, I'll tell it to you. I don't know if I'm reading this correctly, but the name is 180916.j0158 plus plus six
0: five. It really rolls off the tongue.
1: Right. Exactly. We're just going to call it HA, whatever. Uh, But, yes, this has been quite a a breakthrough, actually, uh, that they're actually seeing one of these emit on a regular frequency to Ben's point. It very well may be a planet or some kind of body that is turning towards the Earth every 16.35 days, and that's when you're seeing it. Uh, It raises questions about whether we're only seeing this because the equipment can see it better now than old equipment. So maybe some of these previous FRBs actually do repeat. Or, you know, this is the message being sent now. Get your shit together. The time has come. 16.3
3: 16.3 days from now.
1: 5, 16.35. 16.35. They're
3: waiting days. at Super Tuesday just to see how this goes.
1: Hedging <laughs> their bets.
3: I <laughs> They're like, all right, if forget Pete it. You doesn't win. a chance. We're done. <laughs>
1: On the day that Buttigieg pulls out, the signal just stops. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it is also 500 million light years away. Well, so, so that
0: was my question: is how long it was going to take yeah, them to get it's here? It's entirely
1: possible this thing has been just you know so, dead for half
0: a. So billion years. So actually,
2: it's been talking half a billion. Well, it's been. It
1: took. It, it took half a billion light years right. for the signal to get here. Yeah, yes.
2: so it took. if it took – that means yeah. they were trying to communicate with trilobites.
1: They are super late at <laughs> yeah, the, the party. The, the,
2: the, yeah, and look what happened to the trilobites. <laughs> if we who, pick up – like, my them. god,
1: this is the wrong number. <laughs> it's also fascinating that we've recorded a whole podcast. Somehow we managed to do it every week. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find one eight zero nine one six point J zero one five eight point plus six five challenge coins at Ferb Blog dot space Store. What do you have a tweet you want to share?
3: No, that's all. I.
1: Okay. Sorry. I don't
3: even have a funny joke to riff off okay. of the Lawfare store.
1: <laughs> you can follow us at at RATL Security. You can follow us as well on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. That really helps us out and helps other people find the show, even ones who are 500 million light years away.
3: Day you two. can get a Trump, a, uh, Shane-branded tinfoil hat yes. at the law <laughs> store as well.
1: Hey, listen. You can, I have, I'm not wearing my alien socks today, but we could sell those on the law I'm store. I'm wearing wild thing And make socks. a mint. I'm wearing sharks.
2: Yeah? Yeah. I'm wearing, like, wild rumpus socks. Oh, that's nice.
1: Um, Our audio engineers this week are (laughs) Hadley Baker and Elliot Setzer. The show is edited and produced, or actually just produced and edited, or edited and produced, both. Yeah, a bit of both. A bit of both. By Jen Pati Howell. Music this week by Susan Collins and her stirring rendition of Aerosmith's Dream On.
3: I like it.
1: (laughs) She's just listening to it on repeat. (laughs) (laughs) With Sophia Yan, ready to play us out. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Quinta Dresick, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.